Whoa. So Zoom has two windows that open full screen because I have multiple monitors. Okay. And one of them is just me. So I can see my video on a separate screen. Oh, fancy. Yeah, that's weird. I don't know it's called the van- that's called the vanity monitor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to be able to record. I mean, I kind of <laughs> I'm so distracted. <laughs> infatuated with myself here. Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Uh, so what have you been up to lately? Oh, man, all kinds of stuff. I I feel like it's become part of my job, <laughs> not not like self-imposed and, and, and self-imposed in like an arrogant way uh, to, to like contribute to other libraries that are out there because there's certain things like in the in like the Elixir world where i'm there's certain like things that i i just i get sort of antsy about or like i get uppity about and so whenever i see this stuff i like feel duty bound to like go to go ping people about it so like uh i'm not gonna like say who or what the library was but like there was there's a library (laughs) that because i like i don't want to i don't want to like i don't want to i don't i don't want to be like a, a, a jerk you know what i mean yeah yeah you're you're nicer than me they were doing a thing where they were sort of like saying, oh, we built this thing that gives you a singleton process across your cluster. And so immediately my my like spidey sense, like my elixir sense starts tingling. <laughs> and I went and looked at it and, and they were using global and global doesn't give you that guarantee. And, but like, and it's funny because in their readme, they were like, we don't, we, you know, have you used global and had these problems? Well, guess what? We've solved them. You know, that's like kind of how the readme reads. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm, I put, pointed out, I was like, well, actually, it doesn't solve like the problem that you think it solves. Like, like, it, for instance, like if you get split, like split brain, uh, or rather, like if you have a partition in your cluster, you'll easily get split brain, meaning you'll have two processes running. Cause it, that's just how global works. And so like, I don't know, but I've been doing that on like a bunch of libraries recently. <laughs> did you, did you paste your talk from Elixir days? No, like that <laughs> felt really, that felt really, really like just sort of like self-promoting. Well, I mean, you, you are wearing the shirt that has your name on the back right now. So. <laughs> I love these shirts. You know, it's funny. This is these, uh, the shirts from Elixir days. They're like, you know, this, this like stark white shirt with, with the, uh, with the big purple, uh, Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. Yeah. It's funny. I wore this and my wife saw me and then she goes, I think that's the first time I've ever seen you wear anything but black or gray. (laughs) (laughs) In like 10 years. (laughs) My wife had a very different response. She's like, why are you wearing a shirt with a guy in a joint in his mouth around our children? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i was like i think it's a cigarette <laughs> it's a it's a cigarette it's a, yeah it's good <laughs> oh man so that's that's one way that you can get over this uh need to fix every library is just have uh, lots of children like me and then you have the need you just don't have the time so it doesn't matter right yeah <laughs> i i can't argue with people on the internet 
I try not to argue. I try just to sort of say like, and in fact, I often will like write the stuff up and then send it to other people and say like, am I being a jerk? Like, does this, does this sound like me being a jerk or is this like, is this fair to, to yeah. comment and to say? So I have to like fact check it. I don't know. Cause tone on the internet is so hard. Like I, I, I've definitely fallen prey to, I don't know, being sarcastic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it totally doesn't come across that way, especially if you if people don't know me, like they may not realize that I'm a sarcastic person. And then all we end up then it comes across as like being a jerk or or being really condescending or whatever. And and you, you never want that. That's like not a good way to have a conversation. So you have to really I don't know the like there's so much fidelity that's lost when you enter into a sort of text based medium. So you have to really be careful about that stuff, I think. Well, and, and I've noticed, um, so I work with people all over the world quite a bit, and I've noticed that different cultures too, like we're becoming more of a one world culture, but people approach things differently from everywhere. And mm-hmm. so some people come across as like crass. And then when mm-hmm. you talk to them, you're like, oh no, that's just that's just how they their culture is or you deal with somebody else from the same culture so that that can be really difficult too yeah no doubt well and yeah all of it all of it's tricky and you have to sort of give everybody the benefit of the doubt and just sort of say like i bet they really didn't mean to to be offensive or to like i I bet they didn't mean to be rude to me or to hurt my feelings like they're probably just trying to be funny and they don't you know it's or or whatever and it's just ill-timed so you kind of have to give people a little bit of the benefit of doubt on that. Yeah. What's been going on with you? Oh, uh, not much. Uh, just um, the other day, I had to. I released a new what, what do we call them? Packages, libraries. I say library pa- or hex package. package. Hex yeah, package. I, well, I, I work um, with embedded a lot, so sometimes like you know, libraries overloaded. Like everything's a library. The DLLs are libraries and things like that. SOs that I have to load. And there's not a nice word like gems for Ruby. Like we need, we need a name like just for Elixir. I think uh, glasses, liquids. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some yeah there's some sort of there's there's some sort of cute word Flask. to describe it. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Well, but it's yeah alembic. Like there's some sort of there's probably some alchemy related. Oh yeah, r- related thing we could all use. <laughs> um. So. Uh, it's bamboo config adapter. Um, have you ever used bamboo for email? Uh, no, I make a point of not dealing with email. <laughs> I make other people do that. <laughs> the system uh, I'm working on right now has alarms that go off and people need to know about them because data centers can burn down if they don't. So um, one of the mechanisms, um, like there's lots of ways that the alarms are published everywhere, but one of them is also to send out emails to people. The problem is that you have to be able to configure on the fly what SMTP server to use because some companies have like one person has to use this SMTP server. Like maybe they have an internal one, but then like some other people need to go external. So every email that you're sending might use a different one. And Bamboo's not really set up for that. So I created an adapter that allows you to have your regular config that Bamboo uses. But you can pass in a config at runtime, and it'll merge the two and override anything in the original. 
which helps. But uh, like now, I've I've been reading the new library guidelines, which is like you know the new thing, right? Right. Yeah. And so I have a global config because I was following the rest of what Bamboo does. And you know, I was reading the config part of the library guidelines, and I'm like, you know what? That does piss me off sometimes that uh, it's a global config and mm-hmm. overridden across the system. Maybe I don't want it to be. And I kind of want to change my library, even though it won't work like the rest of the Bamboo adapters for its configuration. I think it, it might be better in the long run. Configuration, man. Like... I I'm really happy. Like there's there's things to talk about with the with the sort of library guidelines, but mm-hmm. the one that I can sort of stand behind and say yes, please do this is the is the configuration is the configuration stuff. And and I'm of the opinion that we should effectively like libraries should should stop, should just stop using it. Like stop using configuration for for all this stuff because it is global. Like w- like in it in it in it totally um, configuration meaning like making me put stuff in mixed configs and then relying on application.getinf to get it all out. Right. Like, because like it totally sort of invalidates the, the ability to like spin things up dynamically or to change things or to, to be able to change things at runtime or, or, or any of these things that like you need in a real system. I mean, that's the other half of like the libraries I've been like looking at. It's just like, Half the problems are just because I can't just pass you arguments. Like, just let me pass you arguments into your function. Like, that's I don't have any problem doing that. And if I want to manage my stuff with with mixed config or with application dot like I'll do that. I'll do that on my own. I don't need the library to do it for me. Just just let me pass you. Let me let me pass you arguments. Right. Well, and then they're they're not right there at compile time too. So. They're, right, they're which leads to, to all these after. like <laughs> crazy hacks to get around it, and I I know that like they're trying to fix that. I know that like with presumably the next release, like with one point seven or potentially one point, I don't know when. I don't know what the timeline are because I don't think anybody knows what the timelines are for anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, outside the core team, but it, I so I realize like so config in one point seven or one point eight is going to allow you to do like things like system inside of a mixed config file. Which obviously you can't do right now, uh, without, in, unless you're willing to bake it all in at compile time, which typically that's not why you're doing that. So, uh, that's not what you want to do. Right. Um, so that's going to be fixed. But even so, even with those enhancements, I still think it's a bad idea to use mixed config, uh, for, for libraries specifically. Like it's great for me as like when I'm building an application to be able to store stuff in there, mm-hmm. that's a great place for me to be able to manage that. But trust me to manage it library. Like you don't need to do all this for me. Yeah. Just let me start you in my supervision tree the way I need to start you and, and like pass you arguments. Yeah. I, I think this is like lesson learned too. you know, like if you look at the original packages, the original libraries that were out there, they're all, they're all configured that way. Phoenix, Ecto, Everything is configured mm-hmm. in Mix. So those are, I mean, Phoenix is the way that a lot of people end up in Elixir from other places. And so their first experience is, oh, this is where you put configuration. Right. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I, I, it definitely is like a, a, a byproduct of the community and, and, and where we've come from and all that. Um, you know, I, I'm happy that they're making strides to sort of like fix it. But yeah, it's something that we as a community need to get away from because it's it's totally painful. Like 
I don't think, I don't know, when we were building systems a lot of times at work, like, we sort of start from this idea that, like, we will, like, we start a lot more things dynamically than people realize, <laughs> than, like, than, than the docs would have you realize, or than, uh, like, it seems like other people sort of encourage, like, and that library sort of encourage. Like, we start right. stuff on demand when we need it, or we start stuff, you know, once we've pulled environment variables out. Like, we, we have... Our application start is not simple are in these, a lot of a lot of times. Are you starting gen servers or, or multiple applications on the fly? In some cases, like so total, like you know, full supervision trees for our app. It might be other applications, and and we used you know just start that stuff uh, like in our application start uh, manually a lot of times just to get them to be able to just to just to avoid the mixed configuration problem. Yeah. And to, to control how they start up and how they and what they what happens when they crash and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that whole startup thing. I, I deal with things a lot differently when I'm doing development that's web versus hardware. Um, what you're you're mostly doing what kind of development? Uh, these days, like I don't really work on any of the hardware stuff. Um, I mostly work on services, which is, is either like typically GraphQL services or an, an more and more these days, it's actually like Kafka consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, we use Kafka like really heavily for our communication layer. Um, but you know, we're really read bound. We're not really right. We don't write that much to it. Uh, but we use it for reads in a lot of places. And so a lot of that stuff is like uh, Kafka consumers as well. That you're starting on the fly. Yeah, well, we'll either start them dynamically. And like a lot of times, uh, like the client library that we're using will handle, you know, I need to spin up more workers or whatever, just based on how Kafka works. Mm-hmm. But even so, like there's things where we'll st- we start the the applica- the like Kafka application, the client application, I should say, uh we start that ourselves because we want to be able to pass it like dynamic configuration and we want to be able to like uh, control how it, how it restarts and how it crashes and all those, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Um, because at the end of the, like, we, I don't know, I, I'm a big subscriber to this. Uh, I don't know, I know. Like um, Fred talked about this uh, at Elixir days and he's talked about it a bunch at other conferences. And then uh, Jay Lewis also talked about this, which is sort of this idea of like layering you know, you're layering your system and you have sort of like stable system at layer zero, which is the thing is up and it's running it all. And then there's a layer above that, which is like it's up and running and then also doing somewhat useful things. So like, you know, like the first layer may just be like it comes up. And if there's dependencies, like you have to read from a file in order to like start the application. Well, then that file has to be there in order to like achieve like stable layer zero. Uh, but there might be other things that you don't care if they're up or not. Like, do you need a Postgres connection when you boot your application? Maybe, maybe not. Like, and if you don't need it, like, well, let's say that you don't have it. Well, then you return an error and you're like, hey, I'm not connected to the database right now. I can't return you a result. You know, right. that might be a way to think about your system design. Right. Why should I wait on it? Right. And that way, if it goes away, which it inevitably will on a long enough timeline with a big enough system i mean here's the thing if you're building like you know just yet another web app like you probably won't experience that problem that often but if you're if you're at any sort of reasonable scale you will notice like when your database goes down or like when your just the network drops out or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. and at that point you can drop back safely from you know sort of layer one 
back down to layer zero where, you know, you're still running and you can still service like real error messages, but you're not, you haven't crashed. You haven't like took the site down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've been dealing with that a lot lately and part of my issue is applications, right? So they're, they're not configurable supervision wise, like a gen server is. So, um, since I'm on embedded, we use SQLite a lot. And sometimes Ecto won't come up because it, it takes too long. So it times out. So on our boot up, our, it either, it takes down our system if we set Ecto to be permanent started because it's an application. Mm-hmm. Or if we set it to temporary, it goes away and we have to track that and try to start it again. But there's not a supervisor. So you have to write some way to watch it. Right. And also, seems like on doing firmware, a lot of times there's a very specific order that you need applications to start, and there's not really a good way to do that built into the system either, uh, into into Erlang's VM. So what we ended up doing is shoehorn and and nerves that allows you to uh, um, pick the order that things start, and there's a pull request out there where we have what, that you can restart that we worked on with Greg and we're using that branch and it seems to be working well and it allows people to write handlers to restart applications when they fail. So, but, but the bad thing is it feels very hacky because you're kind of like taking over application controller. And, and I mean, you literally named the library shoehorn. So right. right. That's, that's what I didn't name it that great. I think Greg came up with that name. Um, not Greg. I'm sorry. Justin. Sorry, Greg, for thinking you look like Justin. Justin, sorry for <laughs> calling you Greg. <laughs> so, so, but Shoehorn basically, if I'm understanding this right, it basically, it sits in the middle of like the boot process. Like or it sits in between your stuff and the boot process so that you can control how your, you know, disparate OTP apps can be started and then apparently and then also i would i guess then like restart it if they do experience failures or whatever yeah yeah i mean it's it's a super basic supervisor of applications kind of um Mm -hmm. you don't have configurations like you do in a supervisor instead you write a handler which is a module so that you could do things way more complicated than you would at a gen server level Mm -hmm. but sometimes you need that we have a ddos if you get DDoS and SSH, you can take down SSH application. And if you set it temporary, that's great because you don't want it to take down the whole system necessarily. But you might want to restart it and put a circuit breaker on it because if you're continuing to be DDoSed, you might not want to restart it for a half hour or, or five minutes or whatever. Um, so, so it allows you a little more control. In some ways, it's good. And in some ways, it just feels terrible. Like, <laughs> why do I have to do this? I must be doing something wrong, but but I went with it. Yeah. I, I wonder that a lot. If I, when I start fighting against, when I start fighting against things, you know what I mean? When I start sort of fighting against the system, mm-hmm. as it were, I do have to step back and wonder like, am I, am I the one who's wrong here? Like, am I the one who's, am I, what am I, have I just like fundamentally misunderstood something um, I mean, I actually felt, I felt that way about configs for a long time because I hadn't talked to anybody else who felt as strongly about it as like, I, I've sort of stood 
and on a rock and said like don't use just just skip using mixed configs for a while now but it was a it was a long time before i met other people who were like oh no yeah you're totally right and since then i have everyone else i know who's been doing this for a while is like yeah you should just not you should just skip that don't do that (laughs) (laughs) but it does it feels like you're it feels like you're 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 fighting the system to some degree like you're you're, it almost feels like you're you're being like sort of counter-revolutionary like trying to like do these things Mm-hmm. sometimes like if you you know and, and that feels weird it puts you really like it puts you at sort of unease because you you worry about like oh man like is this are we gonna you know the the beam ecosystem is stable in a lot of ways like the like otp gives you good guarantees for this stuff and so whenever you fight it i think it adds to that sort of like feeling of man i really might be doing something really wrong here that i just don't understand why <laughs> Well, I think that I think that's a good thing, though. Like, it almost slows down the progress and makes you think about what you're doing and how you're doing it a little more than if you were just like, "I'm right, let's go," <laughs> mm-hmm. and maybe come up with a better solution. Yeah, I know. The whole time we were working on that shoehorn, I kept saying, "I think we're doing something wrong here," but I'm gonna keep going with it. Let's, let's see what happens. <laughs> but I feel dirty, guys. And they were like, "Yeah, me too." <laughs> Uh, but I'm glad I'm not alone. But I mean, now with the config thing, you you like you said earlier, the library guidelines now are saying don't use mixed config unless you have to, mm-hmm. and really think about it. And what were I don't know? There what were some the, other, what what else did they say in the yeah? In there that, some in other those library guidelines in here. Uh, don't use exceptions. Avoid using exceptions for flow control. I would say avoid using exceptions. Almost entirely. Like, unless you're talking to a low system level thing, you probably, probably shouldn't be raising any exceptions. We, the only place where I use them in a library is in Wallaby. And we do it in order to throw specific exceptions for tests so that we can, like, crash the test process with, like, a meaningful error, if that makes sense. Yeah. We have, like, a handful of exceptions that we'll throw in order to kill the test process, but also like to be able to format the errors really nicely and provide like context for the errors. Yeah. It gives you a lot more than like a a bad pattern match error, right? Yeah. Or like just a failed assertion and you don't know why. And, and it's just like, cause you're just like, I want this, I want the page to like have these CSS selectors and to look like this. And, and then it's like, Nope, false. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then you just go, okay, well, why why did that happen? Uh, so we we use exceptions for that, but I uh, uh, I I do I think that generally speaking, yeah, especially for flow like control flow stuff like this, like what they're describing. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. That's we don't want to you don't want to do that. You want to just let things crash most of the time by having you know strict sort of like pattern matches, and if it doesn't match, then you just blow up. Yeah, that. I find that that's hard for people around me to deal with that haven't been doing Elixir and Erling. Like, I, I kind of tried to embrace that from day one. Like, let it fall apart, and then let's see if we can make it restart okay. And then after that, then we fix what made it fall apart if we can. Because if we can restart okay, then we can fix a whole... Uh, well, not fix, but we can overcome a whole host of other things that could happen other than just a specific instance. Mm-hmm. 
but that's really seems to be hard for people to to let go of. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those things that like I, I I've noticed this this problem as well is like there's certain libraries that are out there, uh, and again, I'm not I don't want to like like point fingers or anything, but there, there's just, there's been libraries that we've tried to use before that don't handle this, that just don't handle failure at all. But they also don't handle restarts in any, like they don't handle like supervision in a way that's meaningful. So like we've had problems where we'll just let stuff crash and it'll take the app down because <laughs> like the, the supervision stuff that they're doing uh, doesn't accommodate like these things not working. Yeah. Doesn't hand, doesn't handle like uh, crashing and stuff like that. Like ecto timeouts on startup. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's just there's just certain things like in the community that I think like we haven't fully come around to embracing yet. And we need to do to, to, to kind of level that up a little bit. And I'm not here to either also say like, you know, uh, let it crash is not like a panacea. Like it's you can't do it for everything. You can't do it for like core, like certain pieces of your application. You need to be more fault tolerant than that. But it's a pretty good way to like to solve a lot of problems, a lot more problems than I think people are letting it solve for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of those things that comes with experience in designing applications with OTP. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, from day one, I embraced it, but I still failed at it horribly because <laughs> I didn't really understand how to deal with it. I still, I still get it wrong all the time. So one of the things in, in just letting it fail, like pet, like, so they suggest, you know, using the okay air two pulse, as returns instead of exceptions, which will throw like the bad match exception. But one thing that I get really frustrated with is the error tuple is usually like, you know, it's error term. And a lot of times the second term somebody puts there is either like a string or a um, atom. And I, I started putting another tuple there and putting an atom and then a string that explains what's going on. That way... If I do want to handle it, I can match against the atom pretty easily. But I have a string that gets displayed instead of like e address not found. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so this is actually another place where I think exceptions are really good. Because what I'll do a lot of times these days is I'll return uh, the error tuple. But the second uh, piece of the tuple is an exception. Oh, and nice. so the exception, the exception has like the exceptions are just a data structure, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what it'll have on it is like all the context that you need, uh, and it has like a nice message if you do want to raise it. Like if you want to like, if, if you decide that you want to raise the thing like later on, then you just raise the exception and you're done. Um, so I've really, I really like that, uh, these days. That's, that's typically what I do. So, so you're just creating the exception data structure, mm -hmm. but not, not raising it, just passing it in. Yeah, Exactly. That's, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. That gives the best of both worlds for me. And then you're, well, then the other thing is like, you can get it to like, one of the things that I, I like doing is like, or one of the things I, I should say I try to avoid doing is, is using a, an error type that is like error term. Um, because then dialyzer can't help you that much. So I try to make those like errors like useful for dialyzer as well. So to make them more specific. Mm -hmm. Um, so at least dialyzer can tell me if I've like overspec something or if I've got like my, my specs slightly wrong. That's something I wish was in the library guidelines is use dialyzer. Yeah. I, I 
think it's more important in a library than in your application. Like you do whatever you want in your application, but library authors not providing that gets kind of frustrating sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I end up wrapping libraries in a layer just to make get like put some specs on something <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of letting it try to infer it. Yeah, I think dialyzer dialyzer is one of those things that I I, I don't I I get why people don't use it. Like I get why people don't want to have to use it mm-hmm. because if you're a type nerd, like if you're, if you, you know, really like ML types and you're, or you really are into Haskell or something, then dialyzer does feel less powerful than that. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the success typing thing. Uh, and if you're not, I mean, if you're just a practitioner who's like trying to come into types, like you don't have enough to go on to understand what dialyzer is doing for you. Like for me, when I learned about dialyzer, I just had to go read the paper. Right. <laughs> and then I read the paper enough times that I was like, okay, I, I get it now. I get what it's doing. And I get why these error messages are like phrased the way they are and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's, it can be a little cumbersome. Like you, the, you know, luckily like the, the, I think the, what are, what's the package name? Uh, it's just like, it's like dialyzer, right? Or dialyzer, dialyzer or something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's gotten better. And like the documentation for it has gotten better, but you know, it kind of, it's still cumbersome. Like you still have to build the PLT. You have to know what a PLT is. You have to know why you have to build it. You have to learn a little bit about these like transitive depths and stuff like that in order to get it all to build correctly. You know, it's, it's, it can be cumbersome, uh, for sure. And it takes, it takes a non-trivial amount of time to run if you're running it cold. Like, you know, if you want to add this to your CI step, it's, it's going to add a non-trivial amount of time. Uh, unless you cache PLTs and stuff. That's where I get uh, complaints from people is, well, they'll run it once and they'll be like, it took an hour. <laughs> <laughs> or I had some C developers that put the types in the specs, didn't realize that you had to have an extra tool for it to really be anything other than informational. And they're like, right. they're like I can still pass in a string. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> like, it's not a, it's not a protection against bad code it, unless you're running dialyzer and then you can't ignore it either. And then the other complaint is some of the error messages out of dialyzer are so hard to follow. Yeah, they're completely opaque if you if you don't know, like, if you haven't been taught or if you haven't read the paper, I mean, they make no sense mm-hmm. because they, they don't describe any like a real problem, typically right. speaking. That a real problem in people's minds anyway you know like what is what is a no local return what does that mean i can kind of start to like piece together what that probably means but why is that like a type error you know you have to it it's hard to sort of like join these these disparate concepts together yeah and i think yeah because of that there's a there's a non-trivial amount of sort of cognitive overhead that it takes to get to learn dialyzer, which I guess maybe is part of why they didn't add it to the library guidelines because it's, it is difficult. But I also think that like, we'd probably generally be better off if everybody was doing it because one, like the, the libraries would be checked, but two, I suspect that we would start working. Like if the guidelines were use this thing and it wasn't fun to use the thing, like then I suspect we would get to a point where it would, be good to use the thing because people would like be angry enough or like frustrated enough to go work on it yeah and to go make the error messages better and that kind of stuff or we might get good docs around it too (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, like, one of the frustrating things for a, a lot of people and was for me when I first started looking at it is that the syntax that it puts in the error messages is really Erlang syntax. Mm-hmm. And although I might have a decent understanding of Erlang syntax, I have to, like, translate it when I'm looking at the Elixir code side by side to try to figure out what's going on. And sometimes that's frustrating. I'm like, okay, if they're both in Erlang syntax or both in Elixir syntax, but when I'm trying to talk between the two, it's just like a lot of cognitive overhead for me. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. So, and apparently I think there's a way, there's a way for us to kind of get in the middle of what dialyzer returns versus what we would expect to see from like an Elixir perspective and to change the error messages. Like, I think that that's like a supported thing. Um, okay. So it probably just means that someone needs to go and do the work to make it happen. And I just suspect that no, you know, people are, people have lives it turns out and just <laughs> haven't done that and just haven't done that work. Translation. Um, but yeah, I think that could be a super useful, super useful tool. I, I, I know that there's this guy who sees wrong things in the community and just like wants to fix every library. So <laughs> maybe you could talk to him. <laughs> yeah, but that's, but only, but specifically about, uh, distributed system stuff oh, okay. as, as, as it turns out. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well. The one, the one, uh, library guideline on here that I think is really cool, um, and really, really a, a useful thing. Um, because it leads into something that I've been really happy with is the, um, the avoid spawning unsupervised processes thing. Yeah. I, I see. I haven't run into somebody doing that very much, but I, I can hop right on board with that. I just felt like, oh yeah, I don't ever do that. Like, <laughs> I have definitely done that. And in fact, the, this is the one that I'm like the most guilty of because, um, Inside uh, the Raft implementation I've been working on, the RPC stuff is done by just spawning a new process instead of using like a task or, or something. Although that I've, I've like corrected it since then. But the original implementation was literally just like it spawned a process and, and then away it went. The problem with doing that is just that if you need to shut down, you have all these processes that aren't linked to anything um, and, and just like can't be shut down gracefully. They're, you know, they just get orphaned basically. And so there's, there's problems with doing that. And that's really, that's like why you should avoid that. Uh, and then, and the, like the guidelines talk about it even more. Um, but the thing that I've been super happy with and the thing, I don't know, I've been using this a lot. I don't know. I haven't talked to other people who have used it as, that much, but I use it constantly is the new dynamic supervisor thing. That thing's awesome. That's great. It's totally solves all the problems that I had with, with simple one for one. Um, so that's, that's been really, really useful. What, what are the problems you've had? Cause I've, I've been kind of, I, I'm kind of torn by it. So I used it for the first time the other day and I actually liked that simple one for one was set up to run a specific gen server, right? Like it can't run. I can't just randomly tell it to run this other type of gen server. I have like one module that it will start link on, right? Mm-hmm. On a simple one for one. And then dynamic is like, just just throw the server at me i'll i'll take care of it i'll watch it and which is it's like a love hate for me i'm like oh that's nice because it's quick and easy but i really like the explicitness of of the simple one for one so you can set up a dynamic supervisor uh to do with like a start child kind of thing um and 
it will it'll do what you're talking about doing um, uh, where you can sort of say like i want to start this all the time so when i say start it just start it for me please and you can you can set it up to do that and and because of that it works really really well with child spec which is also a thing that i'm a big fan of mm-hmm. and so you can actually and that's like i think that was the i don't I was, i'm not on the core team don't at me it's like i don't know but i think that was one of the reasons that they they built dynamic supervisor is to get it to play well with like the new child spec stuff so yeah so you should be able to do what you're talking about doing okay it's just but now it's like actually more explicit to me anyway it's more explicit because you're intentionally starting a thing that is like where you know that the children are going to be dynamic children. Right. And it has like some convenience uh, functionality uh, around that as well. Oh, I just, okay. I didn't notice it in the documentation before the children thing. I just went and looked when you said that. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really nice. And this gets back to this idea of like, to me, uh, the thing we were talking about earlier with configs and stuff and, and sort of like layering systems is like a lot of the stuff that I end up working on, I want to be able to start dynamic amounts of children. Like I want to be able to to control to control that stuff. And this is a really useful tool for that. Now I want to go change the code I wrote the other day. That's, that's <laughs> always me. I always, yesterday me was an idiot. Today me is better. Tomorrow me is going to think today me is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're not growing and learning like that, I, I feel like you might be in the wrong field because there's so much to learn. Like, yes, you sh- you shouldn't look at code you wrote three months ago and think that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I I tend to the way I tend to approach it is I uh, I write stuff and I'm like, you know what, you know who loves fixing things? Future Chris. <laughs> Future Chris loves fixing these things. He he he. he it's like taking out the trash, right? Yeah. It's like you know who loves taking out the trash? Future me. <laughs> that guy that guy loves trash <laughs> he loves taking out the trash that almost sounds like procrastination when you put it that way though like tomorrow me would like to take out the trash <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's you know it's a growing it's a growing thing yeah yeah <laughs> i like it though i i might i might use that just make sure you leave yourself enough breadcrumbs to, to actually remember what you were doing right <laughs> Yeah, actually try to remember. See, I, I, so it's funny. I worked with a guy for a while. Um, one of the smartest people I've, I've, you know, ever really worked with. He told me one time because we were trying to dig back through some code that he'd written like forever ago and neither of us understood what was going on. And I was like, what, what were you, what was, what was going through your mind when you did this? And he's like, well, actually, I kind of enjoy the process of digging through all these things. So I, I tend to sometimes wander around because it's kind of fun for me to like try to relearn how I got to these, to, to these, how I made these decisions. Yeah. It's like, okay, man, that's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I, may, I mean, maybe it works. I, you know, it's, it's, if you like constructing your own sort of like cathedral of madness, then that's, you know, <laughs> that's great. Oh, uh. What else do they have in here? Uh, Agent patterns. Uh, invalid data up front, top of the library. Be defensive at the entrance to the library so you don't get way down in the weeds before they have an exception. Yeah, like in the example they give about at least making sure that the file to write to is a binary at the top level is pretty good. I, I, I kind of feel like if you can't do it with a guard clause, it, it's going to get hard to do because... What happens when that, like, maybe you don't read that file for a while and 
check, like, you can't check that the file exists at the top. I guess you could. Well, what happens when the file exists when you check it? But by the time you actually try to read it, it doesn't. Like, I feel like deciding what to check at that top level is tough. Mm-hmm. Or, or how deep you go in checking it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I have this problem a lot, actually, because I, I think about it in terms of, like, you, you sort of want to do... You, I tend to try to think about designing systems from the point of view of doing all of the the IO side effecty stuff, you know, either like upfront gathering all the data from all these disparate places, you know, whether it's like accepting data in from a, a web request or whatever, like all that kind of gnarly IO stuff. And then you provide validations around it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, and, and uh, because what you want to do is protect your sort of stateless inner core as it were like so you do all the I, the gnarly io stuff in one big block and then pass that into stateless things that you can sort of like check and you don't have to assert like oh well does the file exist in the middle of this like what should be stateless operation and at the end you do more stateful stuff where you're just like all right now that we've gotten answers now we write that back out to disk or we send it into a database or we respond to the web request or whatever that's how i like to approach it but honestly like that's that's hard that's like that's it's often hard to do because the majority of what we what we work on in my opinion uh it tends to be really side effecty like tends to be stateful stuff a program with no side effects is a pretty boring program right you know (laughs) like it's it's it doesn't it doesn't do it doesn't do a lot (laughs) um so like i I, yeah i don't know it's tricky so are when you're doing that are you having a i guess like let's say you're going to read a file and then write a file right so Mm -hmm. do you you read the file and then go through a bunch of chains and then write the file down at the other end or does that data come back up to the top so you're reading and writing at the same level like is all of your IO at the top or, or do you have like sandwiched in the middle? Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I kind of get, get what you're saying. Like read read file, pass it to something, it returns something and then write fi- file in the same function or is it opposite ends? I think that's that's typically that's typically how I would how I would look at it is like you have one function that is sort of the um it's sort of the the glue, right? It's it, it's the canonical controller, you know, in in like a MVC kind of way, or like you know, it might be like your Phoenix controller or something. But like mm-hmm. you have, you know, data coming in, that you need to handle. So you have data coming in, you uh, that you know is coming, in, or like let's say let's take your file example, right? So we have some we have some process that kicks off this reading from a file thing. So we then go and we read from the file, and that ha- that's all side effecting, and it could break. Uh, we don't know. So you read from the file and then you need to do some transformation on it, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a stateless thing. And then you need to do to put the file like to, to write uh, contents back out. So what I would typically do is I'd have like a module that is just the stateless stuff. It's it's just data. It takes data and it returns data. And it doesn't even have to be a process. Like it's just it's just some set of uh, some bag of functions that does that transformation step. And it doesn't hold state on its own. It doesn't do anything. It just takes data in and like gives you data back. And then uh, I would have a process that actually does the sort of like the reading part, the 
uh, you know, this is in a vacuum where we don't need to read like this is assuming you don't need to like read gigabytes of, of data or whatever. And you don't need to do, you know, you don't need to use gin stage or any other stuff. Like, so you'd have some piece of state somewhere that knows how to like some process somewhere that knows how to read the file. And then it passes it into the stateless stuff, gets a result and then puts it in back out into the file and then writes it back to disk or whatever. So all that happens in a single place and it can all be, you know, supervised and it can crash and it can do all the things it needs to do on its own, isolated away from the rest of the world. I think there's like a bunch of benefit in doing that because if you do that, then all the real business logic, the stateless stuff, that can all be, you know, you can really thoroughly test all that. Mm-hmm. It's really, really easy to test that. Like you can do even better. You can like property test it all uh, to really sort of assert that you got it all right. And then, you know, you can just do like one big like sort of integration that's like, hey, does it, can it read from the file? Can it put things to the file? Does it look more or less like what I think it should look like? Cool. I think uh, there's a tendency that I've seen to not put that impurity, impure, I'm going to use the functional term impure functions, so functions that have side effects in the same place. I see a lot that like you have an impure function that passes to what I would say, the function itself is pure, but it passes to another one and they keep passing down till the very last function is in a chain is impure also. So instead of it returning all the way back up, it just continues to pass down. And when it's returned all the way back up, the thing that you get returned is like, yes, I wrote that to the database for you. So you've just like turned all those semi-pure functions into impure functions by the very end of the chain is impure. So now the whole thing is and making, making it hard to test. Well, so I think like in the, the sort of functional programming way, I would think about that is like you are taking a set of, you're taking some impure things and you've got some pure things, presumably pure things. And then what you're doing is you're lifting the pure things into the context of you know file io or whatever like you're uh, in basically into the context of doing impure things so we we might need to define lifting i mean i've been reading a lot about monads so so i've, I've heard it enough times but but i i think i need a little more so lifting just means like in this context uh or in the way i'm using it right now uh i would say lifting is taking a program or a set of functions, right? That can form like a program and running that program in the context of impure side effects. So uh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the beauty of doing these, like uh, of, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about monads that much, but it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of the beauty of, of this design. I, I would say is, you can build a whole thing like you could build a whole program that's that's purely stateless that just takes data in and gives you data back out, uh, except as we've said, like without side effects, it doesn't run and it's not useful. So you have to do side effects. But once you have that pure stateless program that takes data in and, you know, puts data back out, you send you, you take it and then you run it in the context of, you know, doing file I.O. And that that process of taking it and running it in that context is like referred to as lifting. Like we're lifting it into the context of, of IO or something like that. Okay. Makes sense. What, one thing that I've seen that uh, I guess that I've worked with and I've done 
was thinking that I was doing something here when I sent a message to another Gen Zoomer, which is not, <laughs> that's, that's not a pure thing. It just felt right. pure because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm still inside of Elixir or Lang. And so, oh, and, and then I was like, oh, wait, no, no, it wasn't. If you're changing state of a Gen Server or even sending it a message, once it leaves you, that, that act of leaving is just like writing to a screen. Bring that back up to that same impure level that you're talking about. It's like an impure shell <laughs> mm-hmm. around your application. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's it's one of the it's 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 one of the funny things about Elixir uh, and Erlang, kind of in their in their history as languages, is that like there's really n- not a lot about you have to go out of your way to write pure functions in Elixir. Like by default, that's not what we're going to do. And the thing is, is, we do impure things all the time, like sending messages to processes or, or any of this kind of stuff. Like that's okay. But it turns out that's okay because like, you know, we, there's a lot of benefit in doing that. And it's just part of the way that we, it's, you know, we guard against that using things like supervision trees and, you know, using, uh, these, these other constructs that OTP gives us, we, that's how we defend against that. Uh, and, and I think that that's like a really cool pattern as well. Like, I, I don't know, like I'm happy using Elixir as much as I love Haskell. Like I'm happy using Elixir for production because it lets me do these useful things and it, you know, doesn't get in my way when I need to, when I need to do this stuff. I, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, but it's a funny, it's a funny trade off. Yeah. And, and a tough one. I just think I think it gets it just gets hard to recognize um, until you've practiced it a while like not not the benefits of it I think I think that for me was pretty easy but but recognizing that oh shoot this is impure I should probably put this somewhere else Mm -hmm. I don't know I usually I figure it out when I'm testing. <laughs> <laughs> I think testing is a great testing is a great way to figure that stuff out. I mean, testing is a really good way to prove like, oh yeah, this is not this isn't going to do what I actually wanted it to do, or I mean, this is really obnoxious to try to test all this stuff. Well, how do we decompose those things? Yeah, and 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 side effects typically will be the thing that indicates that. We know whether you're sending a message or writing to a file, it's like, oh yeah, that's that's a that's a pain to have to test that. We should really isolate that or decouple these pieces or whatever. I wonder if this kind of stuff should end up in the, uh, in the library guidelines. Like there's, that was one thing that I remember missing in there was there was nothing about testing that I remember seeing up uh, under publishing. It says write tests, but it's like brushed over, I guess that's my issue. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. There was a couple of things that I thought were kind of missing from this. And one of them was like writing tests and talking about, you know, I don't know, not the art of writing tests, but maybe sort of how, you know, some guidelines on how you'd want to do that, et cetera. But the other, the other one that I was surprised, but not necessarily disappointed that wasn't in here was it doesn't say anything about the formatter. (laughs) Like it doesn't say (laughs) anything about like you need to use it or whatever. And I guess maybe just they assume that people are using it, which that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually happy that I've I've seen less pull requests and stuff taking time working on the formatter and I feel like there's there's I'm not trying to bash the formatter. I'm feeling like there's actual movement on Elixir itself where the formatter was it just didn't feel the same. You know, I didn't get the same satisfaction from seeing a pull request for the for the formatter cuz I right. I read a lot of the Elixir pull requests. I <laughs> 
that's my OCD thing. There's also so many of them sometimes that I can't read them all, but yeah, it's just nice to not see like every day a new format or pull request or complaint. Yeah, there were so many, there's like so many issues for a while, which were like, why does it not do this, this thing? Or why did it do this or that? I mean, for a while it was, there was legit bugs, like it broke. So I, for one of our uh, apps at work, we're still on Elixir 1.4 and we ran the formatter on that code base and it, it broke it. Like it, it, it wouldn't compile anymore with 1.4. Oh no. Yeah. So they fixed that. Uh, that was in like a patch release that got, that got fixed. But you know, for a while there was like legit bugs. Like it just broke, you know, and we saw one thing. I don't remember what it was now, but we saw one thing where we ran the formatter on a file and then ran it again on the file. And then we got different results. I, I had that happen too. <laughs> it's like, uh oh, if you format something that you just ran the formatter on, it should, it should be. Yeah. Theoretically, it should not do that. Right. It shouldn't change anything. <laughs> yeah that would that would be my that was our thinking as well so that was concerning but yeah it seems like they've fixed most of that stuff and and i guess the the opinions part it's like everybody's said their opinions now and you know those issues have been closed yeah. you know as as will not fix or whatever they're gonna be you know i guess some of the I, maybe some of those opinions like made it into the formatter maybe they didn't i don't know i don't i don't use the formatter i noticed some of them did so, some things changed and um but a lot of them were like Sorry, this is what we decided. And and I get it. Uh, I get what their goal is. And it does make it nice for them working on cores. They can just be like, uh, format it. Now, all of core is consistent. If you don't like the way core looks, then get over it. You don't have to use the formatter. Right. <laughs> but it took me a while to get there. Like, at first, I was I was angry. <laughs> like, why are, we, why are we spending time on this kind of thing? But I can't, I can't complain because I wasn't spending all my time on it either. <laughs> I might have right, been reading yeah. pull requests, but I wasn't doing it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, kudos to them. I'm glad that it's a thing, and people seem to be really excited about it. Like I remember at the when when uh, they they announced it at Elixir Conf, like a lot of people were really excited about it, which I just I found surprising, just because I don't know that stuff is not. It's a, it's a, it's a nice thing to have for the community, but it's mm-hmm. not compelling to me as like a, that's not like a thing that I was really burning for, but I mean, it seems like people like it. So that's fine. Like I said, we haven't used it. We don't use it at work. It's like one of the only universal decisions our entire team made, uh, where we just didn't have any arguments. We just chose not to use it, which is pretty funny, but, but yeah, I mean, if people are liking it and it's useful for them, that's, that's good. Yeah. I, I was surprised that everybody, like there was so much excitement over it mainly because style guides and things like that seem to be like this emotional thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, they're going to feel like they're losing it. <laughs> That's not what I like. And and I, we've used it on a couple files just because they were so bad. And some of the people on the team get really uptight about the way certain things do. And I'm like, well, it was, it was a really old giant file. You can <laughs> go change it however you want it to look, but just make it consistent at least a right. bit file so i i don't know i like that it keeps things consistent i think it would be it would just be a cool tool i think this would be really hard to write if you could create a style guide and then have the formatter read that style guide and do the thing but (laughs) yeah i guess it i guess it's well and it defeats their goal which is like they don't want it to be configurable they don't want it to you know they don't want you to be able to change it because then nothing's consistent um, right. which I, I, t- I totally buy uh, as a as a design goal. So that seems that seems reasonable. Yeah. And I think it's good for open source. 
because it gets rid of the the bike shedding argument like for them although then there's right. arguments about the formatter itself but you know if i'm a library maintainer and i use the formatter i could be like hey not my problem talk to them <laughs> right so i don't know uh overall how you feel about the the library guidelines i i don't there's nothing in there that i'm against i don't think Overall, I really, I think these are good. Overall, I, I mean, actually, I don't think there's anything in here that I disagree with. And these are these are definitely all problems that, you know, we've encountered mm-hmm. through like work and whatever else. So like, I don't know, they're really good. They're definitely a bunch of stuff that if you've been doing this a while, none of it's going to be shocking, but all of it's good to read. And I hope that people start taking this stuff into account and, uh, start start like start using these ideas yeah. uh because they because the, I, mean, I think i think i've encountered this literally every single one of these i've encountered this in a in in a library inside at some point in time and so the the more that we avoid these kinds of pitfalls the the better we're all gonna be so yeah so i, I like it I'm, I'm happy that they they put this together that's good i just want more about testing maybe we need a testing guidelines also yeah i mean maybe somebody should work on that I'm sure I'm sure no one's going to turn that pull request down. No, probably not. I although they may say just put it in an X unit documentation, but it, it feels like the act of testing feels different than like how to use specific parts. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Actually I've been tracking a lot lately, uh, you know, proper testing, proper check, and mm-hmm. uh your PR and I'm totally gonna mess this up, but uh or not your PR, your your discussion on stateful generators. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then uh, I'm just going to start out like completely messing up somebody's name on purpose um, because otherwise I'm going to mess people's names up later and they're going to feel bad. So I'm just going to mess them all up. So um, cl- class Alfred. <laughs> sure it's Klaus Alfred, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he had some, some pretty good stuff in those PRs too. Uh, we should link those in show notes, but yeah, I feel like I feel like we should do a whole kind of maybe discussion at some point um, about just the state of property testing, mm-hmm. and because uh, I've had some, I've had this discussion with a bunch of people. Um, I want to get more people involved in it, so yeah, I think that might be a good a good topic for the future uh, is actually to go through and talk about where we're at with property testing in Elixir, mm-hmm. and um, and talk about ways that. You know, that might be changing and what we might be able to do with it in the future, too. That'd be fun. That would be cool. And, and what was it? Uh, 2017, what's it is, that you talked about property testing? Mm-hmm. Yep. Using, what, Quixer? Yeah. Yeah, that was Dave Thomas's library. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a pretty good talk. I, I really liked it. I think it's a good introduction for people. And then... And then they can move on to like the stateful generation and maybe generating events instead of just some data to pass into a single function. Cause mm-hmm. I think that's where the real power comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the model checking, like I mean, the, the stateless properties are, are fun. They're nice, but the magic is, is in model checking. It's in the, it's in the stateful stuff. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it totally, it's humbling. But it feels so good when you have that stuff. <laughs> everybody, everybody that I talk to that's done any sort of property testing for any amount of time brings up the humbling fact. I think, it, and and then I, 
you know, it's it's humbling in two ways. It's humbling whenever you find out that the code you thought was well tested and and really well written has these crazy corner cases that you never thought of. And then the the second thing is like just coming up with a property test and the actual properties and the amount of thinking that takes. You're like, man, I I can write tests all day before, and now it takes all day to write a test. <laughs> yeah no it's so hard the property tests are so much harder to write especially if you want them to be useful like if you want them to to be good and to shrink properly and to to give you real results for stuff they're so much harder to write but that one test the mileage on that one test is so i mean it's so good so so good yeah well i can't i can't wait for us to talk about that again i know that you've got stuff going on today I need to go. And, and my intern, I wrote on my, my door to my office on air, leave me alone. And I moved his laptop out because he wasn't here when we started. So I moved his laptop out of the room. It's like, you can, you can work in the break room because <laughs> I'm recording. Um, so we should probably button this up. We've, we've gone all over the place, but generally speaking, library guidelines were forum, sounds like. Yeah, I, I think they're pretty good. Um, they're pretty good stuff. And, and, you know, this is our first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're missing somebody. Mm-hmm. I yeah, think we should, hopefully. I think we should let that person introduce themselves when they get here. That sounds good to me. So, so people, if anybody actually listens before that other person shows up, they can, they can make guesses and wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I always listened to the Ruby Rogues back in the day. And then when I was on this Agile Life, we had picks at the end of the episode mm-hmm. of like something that's got your attention. It doesn't have to be technology wise or Elixir wise. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, I mean, honestly, if you want to learn more about property testing, yeah, I think the best resource out there is uh, Fred's book, uh, Proper Testing. It's available at propertesting.com. Uh, we can add a link to that as well. And uh, yeah, go read through that because it's great. It's written in his sort of uh, the, the, the sort of style that he has. It's so kind of readable and, and also informative all at the same time. And it's great. Uh, you'll learn a ton just by going through that. Uh, it's in Erlang. So if you're coming from Elixir, you know, that's you, you got to do the translation. But uh, the translation is pretty easy. And I think the, the generally speaking, the principles that you'll learn from going through that are you know, they're fantastic and that they'll really give you a good sense of what to do. Maybe somebody should go translate all the code examples in there. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's, uh, I don't know if I'm, I think that's being worked on. I think that's, oh, cool. I think that's uh, a thing. And, and, and so for me, this is funny because I, I, I don't know. It seems like everything Fred does. I'm like, Hey, you should, you should look at that. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I had to teach somebody about tracing. Hmm. And because we're running into too many, uh, too many log statements, like just killing the system or like getting in there and getting like, it's hard to read the code because there's log statements everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to show them the DBG and sys and the things that you can do with that. But DBG is cryptic and, and really hard mm-hmm. and kind of. Like all the method names are like NP, P, C, NPL. Like, what is this stuff? Recon is is a library by 
Fred. It's also in Erlang, but since we can use that anyway, it has a, a much nicer user interface. And DBG is super powerful, and you can take down your system if you mess something up when you're using it. And Recon tries to protect you from that a little bit. Like, it's prod safe-ish. Because <laughs> um, it probably is not going to shut down your system entirely. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you can't trace everything. If you try to, it just tells you no. Um, so, check out Recon. It's pretty cool. Hey everyone, Amos here. Thank you for listening to the first ever episode of Elixir Outlaws. Thank you to my son Noah for the music for the podcast. And just wanted to let everyone know that you can find us on Twitter at Elixir Outlaws and our website, elixiroutlaws.com. Again, thank you for listening.